Welcome to the JMS Podcast. My name is Jorge M. Sanchez and thank you for tuning in. Today's guest is the wonderful Joseph Aruda. Uh, I met this guy in the downtown streets and man, he is a talented artist. And of course, I say that about all my artist friends and it's all true, but this guy especially. On a very low-key note, he seems very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Intellectual. He is. But once you dig in, you see that in his work, you're like, man, this guy's prolific and this guy's all over the place. And and you might see some of his work at local cafes or at the uh, local uh, jazz um, club. Can I call Cafe Stretch a Jazz Club? I don't know anymore. It has the word cafe in its title, but I don't want to call it a cafe. It, it's not really a club. It's like a restaurant. I don't know. But it is what it is. You, you can sometimes find <laughs> the work in there. Uh, no disrespect to the cafe stretch people. I just don't know how to identif- identify that place yet. But maybe sometime soon. But I, I catch uh, Joseph Aruda a lot of times by Frascati. That's where I, I used to usually hang out with. And um, it's great. He's a great guy to talk to uh, with a lot of interesting things to say. And I'm really happy that he agreed to be on this podcast. And for some reason, I mean, I'm 80 episodes in. Already a year and a half of doing this. And for the most part, enjoying it and really getting to know about the local characters in San Jose and beyond, of course. I get uh, a lot of guests for, who are from other parts of the Bay Area. And I'm always, always amazed that they even agree to come on here and chat with me. And I know what you're saying. You're like, come on, Jorge. It's, it's pretty cool, whatever it is you're doing. But I'm like, still, at the end of the day, they, they, they chose to dedicate an hour of their life to sit down with me and be recorded and put it out on the internet for everyone who wants to hear it to hear it. And that still blows my mind for some reason. And I, I, I don't know what to do with it. I'm like, all right, this is cool. Just just play it cool. All right, Joseph, what do you got to say? And bam, and he and he and and there he goes. And so we had a great chat. And uh, we had a great chat about art, some politics, and uh, overall just stories, I guess. So stay tuned for this episode of Joseph Aruda. On another note, if you haven't already, uh, please subscribe to the JMS podcast. You can do that on SoundCloud. You can do that on iTunes. You can do that on Stitcher. I don't know why it sounded like I did a question mark there, but I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be a statement. You can (laughs) subscribe on Stitcher. And you can follow this podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please check out uh, the extensive content that this podcast provides by visiting jmspodcast.com. All right, got that out of the way. Now you got all that info as per usual. Um, how are we doing, people? You doing okay? I know, it's, it's a pretty rainy weekend today in San Jose. Uh, hopefully everybody is trying to stay dry. Um... Some people are, are going to embrace the rain. I, I'm already seeing a lot of people on my Facebook feed posting some beautiful uh, sunsets with, with the rain backdrop. That's always nice to see. Um, so, all right, looks like we're doing good. What? Yeah, I know, I know. He, he's not stepping into the White House until January, all right? Can we at least enjoy the holidays? I, I, I get it. I, I could barely eat my Thanksgiving dinner as well. It's still disturbing to me and appalling, but uh, I think we can get through this together. Yes, yeah, I, I'm hearing you. I'm listening to you. He, he, I don't know. 
I, I voted, but I didn't vote for him. I don't know how we got here. Do you? Yeah, it seems like nobody does. All right, all right. Ladies and gentlemen, let's just concentrate day by day. Let's enjoy the holidays. All right. Had a great Thanksgiving dinner. Had it with my family and friends. And um, and it, it was nice. It was nice. I, I've been so busy trying to be an adult that I forgot how good it felt to just sit down and eat food with just a family member or with a friend. So I spent my Thanksgiving pretty good. I really did. I'm also trying to do my best to... Uh, I mean, now that I'm out of school and I'm working full-time, it's like, all right, I need to buy new clothes. Because truth be told, I've been having the same clothes for my entire, almost entire academic career. I'm not proud of it. But now I'm like, all right, I need to really buy clothes that, that, that suits me, that identify me, that who am I? And I, I'm not having a good time with it. I, I would, I'll go to the local uh, clothing store and I'm just staring at clothing. I'm like, no, that's not me. No, that's not me either. Is that even gonna fit me? It's like I, I I don't know. And before you know it, I'm I'm running ideas through my head. It's like no, none of this is works. I can't buy any of this clothing. I'm not gonna look good in any any of this. What does this mean? Does this mean I have to uh, establish my own clothing line just to uh, dress myself? Am I gonna really have to venture out on a uh, the fashion industry and look for people in in Asia to to really. Uh, put together the clothing and before you know it have own clothing line and then I don't have to worry about ever trying to go shopping for clothing and then before you know it I look to the right and you know what that's a great shirt I'm really digging that shirt I'm gonna buy it so yeah so it takes me about an hour at the store to just pick out one t-shirt is that a problem I think so uh, I'm trying to figure it out uh, I know, I know some of you guys are like, dude, you just pick any shirt, it doesn't matter. But for me, it does, alright? Uh, because uh, I, I'm now identifying myself as a full on adult, and I want to make sure I don't screw that up. And like they say, um, impressions are everything to some people. Not to me, but you know, I, I, I think I, I should try to look normal once in a while. And I don't do very good with normal. So I, I take a long time to really think if something's normal to wear or not. Yeah. Then I got to start over next weekend. All right. If it took me an hour to pick out a shirt, how long is it going to take me to pick out a pants? I'll let you guys know next week. All right. On that note, uh, enough of me chatting. Let's go on with our conversation with Joseph Aruda. This is quite, uh, this is interesting. Interesting. You really haven't been this part of, of the town? I haven't been up around here in years. But it's weird because you said that you worked at First and... Many years ago, I worked at, like, first, at first and Tasman. And uh, so every once in a while, you kind of bounce around and get something to eat or whatever. But it's been like literally 20 some odd years since I've been up and around here. The only other time I think I've been here in the last several years, I, I, had a, I have a, a, a current existing customer that I visit. It's on North First. It's just like, okay, went straight there to their corporate campus. Did well, what we had to do straight out. What line of work were you doing over here? Uh, tech. So I've always just worked in tech. There's nothing specific in tech? 
Like the uh, back in? back then, I did uh, account management, which just sounds like you know glorified sales jockey, and and I it was not even that exciting. No, so I don't know, Joseph. I, you, when I meeting you and talking to you, you seem like those those very few people. Sorry, that seems like they really got it together. Where you managed to really blend in your artistic uh, endeavors with also with a pretty stable job. Yeah, no, it's a complete it's a complete farce. It's a facade. So I, I, I do it because I don't know how to do anything else, right? So it's like, I, I like tech. I like political science because that's what I actually studied with as an, as an undergrad. And I like art. Where did you study political science in? Uh, I did everything except the language component at UC Davis. And I did the language component at Berkeley. So um, what does that even mean, language component in politics? Uh, my focus is on the Middle East. So I took a year of Arabic at, at Berkeley. Because uh, they didn't offer it at Davis at the time, uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I got I had I, you know I have these varied interests, and I don't know how to actually reconcile them, so I just do them all. I do all of them kind of yeah. uh, haphazardly, right? So it's like I still read political science textbooks because I'm just so goddamn exciting, and and um, yeah, yeah, I work in tech because I like working in tech. I'm I'm a I'm a pre tech bro. I I'm at the the get off my lawn stage of technology career. Yeah. So I no longer get excited about the latest JavaScript library or the, the it's like, no, no, I'm just doing what I like to do. You so, guys, yeah. And when you're reading, I mean, when you were studying political science and you were concentrating in the Middle East, uh, why that specific region? Uh, it was the late 90s. And um, so my interest, like I, I just, I've always had an interest in Africa, the Middle East, uh, Southeast Asia. Do you have any roots there? No, actually, the, the 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 linkage is a bit more ephemeral. Um, so I'm Portuguese. I'm ethnically Portuguese. Parents are immigrants. Came here in '72, and um, I got kind of just fascinated in the history and the culture. And of course, Portuguese history, Iberian Peninsula history, eventually leads you to North Africa. North Africa kind of leads you to, to a whole bunch of different things. And uh, I became fascinated with like arabesques, Islamic art, stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I started learning things like you know most. Most Portuguese and Spanish words that begin with AL are actually Arabic-derived. And that right. just kind of led me to just a generic interest, uh, which eventually just kind of led me, you know, like having grown up in the, the 70s and 80s, you know, I actually still remember as a kid, like, the assassination of um, the Prime Minister of Egypt. I remember the bombing in, in Beirut. Um, Arafat? Not Arafat. Well, no, Arafat died a little bit a little bit later. Um, all of a sudden, now that I'm impressed for it, I cannot... Anwar Sadat. That was Sadat. The, there Sadat. we go. I... Is it one of those two? I get them mixed up. Yeah, I actually still remember as being a very small kid that the news just covering it like all over the place. So just the region was kind of fascinating. And um, was it all the conflict? Not just the conflict. Like the, culturally, it's like it's 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 it was just different and it was interesting. And and the, the as far as the language goes, it sounded kind of cool. Um, and it looked like visually, you're like, wow, that's really that's really kind of that's different. Like if you're especially if you're like a teenager, you're like, okay, they write from right to left and it's all connected and it just looked really really neat. Um, and then later on, it was just, you know, you meet people who are from the region and it's like, it's, it's just, so, so you actually traveled over there. I've only been to one part of the Middle East once. I went to Marrakesh in Morocco mm-hmm. and that was really, really cool. Uh, now, now, now this is interesting. Do you, do you really consider Morocco part of the Middle East or would you say it would be more technical North African or African in general? It's, it's, it's both. Um, it was really interesting. I went to the city. I went there for four and a half days. The first two days I spent in the inner city. It's like, it's kind of teardrop shaped. Yeah. And it's got walls that go all the way through and you get to the inner city and it's very, very traditional. 
excuse me, and it's beautiful. I mean, it's just these weird, small, tiny um, kind of alleyways and stuff. It's almost that, that almost overly romanticized, picturesque, kind of old, ancient city kind of thing. And I stayed in, um, it's kind of their version of a B&B called a Yod. And uh, it was really, really cool. I got you know, breakfast served to me. It's very, very affordable. Go into the inner city, see all the sooks and, and go looking at stuff. Um, and very, very traditional, right? You could not find booze or anything anywhere. It was just not to be found. I drank enough tea to where I think I, I probably could have pissed a mojito. Like I just would have <laughs> processed just green tea with mint everywhere, every right. five inches you can get it. Yeah. And they only serve it by the pot. So you just like get pots and pots and pots of tea. And you stayed in Marrakesh, or did you travel to like Casablanca? Or no, I only, I only went to Marrakesh because I, I, so I, I go on, I, I go take vacations when, whenever, um, like whenever my company sends me somewhere, I'll try to like take PTO because I figure while I'm there, I may as well like enjoy something other than beige conference rooms. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So like when I got sent to Munich, I went to Hamburg and then Copenhagen, um, and then this last time I was I was sent to a little tiny town just outside of Lisbon called Kishkaish and I said well you know check flights because so I was thinking Scotland and it was in October and I went well maybe Scotland in October is a bad idea because it'll be cold and wet and disgusting right so I said, oh Marrakesh round trip like less than 250 bucks I think so I just pop, pop plane ticket go look at Airbnb for stuff stayed in the Riyadh for a couple days and then went to the outer city which is like the complete opposite totally hyper modern so this is a, a recent travel yeah it was like two years ago okay Wow. It just, it, it took a while to like get around to, well, for a while there were like places that I wanted to go to, well, a lot of them still aren't safe. Like Libya, probably not a good place to go vacation right yeah. about now. Um, and then I still want to go to Oman. Oman? Uh, it's, it's beautiful. It's a great tourist spot. It's just hard to get to because yeah. it's on the corner of the, you know, Strait of Hormuz. It's like, well, how do you get there? Well, you get on your bicycle. <laughs> but, and pretty much, let's go back in time because... Not because you mentioned that you do everything, and that includes art too. Yeah, because you do from simple pencil sketches to elaborate. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I'm I'm learning this whole art thing. Like I'm I'm really yeah. I don't, I don't ever, judge, bro. Ever since I'm getting an artist on this podcast, I'm like I really got to learn my art shit. So I've been yeah. I've been trying to study hard. So I'm trying to d- distinguish between the different styles and the different uh, I, I ages do, in, in art. I do a lot of random abstract. I do a lot of random abstract stuff. Abstract. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. Like you do these elaborate abstract paintings. Uh, but where did you start from? I'm like most kids. Like, I, I, you know, you're a little kid and you, you just you need stuff to do. So you find like you find the pencil or you find the pen and you start drawing. Well, first you start trying to draw the Sistine Chapel on your on your mom's kitchen wall. That gets you in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and so then, then they hand you paper, and you, you work. were a pretty confident kid to be like, "I'm painting the Sistine Chapel." Well, I was I, okay, so I'll admit I, I was a pretty weird, isolated kid. Um, very, very quiet, very, very. Um, and you grew up here in the. Suburbs? I grew up here, so it, it's and I guess I'll, I'll try to tie this together. So I grew up, you know, Portuguese immigrant parents. My parents were learning English; they had just arrived. I had just arrived. Um, you know, my mom I think came a couple months pregnant, so it was just like you know. I showed up immediately thereafter. So I was learning English when my parents were learning English. Technically, English is my second language, although I now speak it much better than I speak Portuguese. And um, so I kind of, you know, as a kid, you didn't quite fit in right, so you ended up sitting back a lot. So you found things to keep yourself occupied, which for me, I lived like two blocks from the library, and my parents kept 
giving me pencils and pens. So I kind of just went to town and kept at it. And I found myself, like, by the time I was eight or nine, I was already, like, going to the library to go get books on, like, the Dutch Masters. Or, like, you know, Klimt and Egon Schiele and stuff. And then by my teens, I was looking at everything and anything. It could be, like, Japanese wabi-sabi design. could be anime. could be comic books. could be, like, you know, studying chiaroscuro and, like, the old Italian masters. could be whatever the hell came up. Like, Hopi, Hopi like, you know, Indian Hopi, Hopi patterns. Like, anything and anything. Uh, so I never learned. It was just, like, my musical taste. My musical taste all over the, the map because I never got the memo that says, oh, you have to find your thing. Mm-hmm. And your thing is going to be this, like this particular series of tropes and that's you're going to focus on that i never got that so i just stuck my fingers in every pie i could find and as a result i do stylized portraiture and mostly abstracts but i've also done like i've done conceptual design work for a video game startup that never took off the ground so i've done like you know sci-fi you know space stuff i've done more kind of pastoral work i've done still lifes i you know it's like i it, and coming from an uh, immigrant family, do you feel like they embraced it when you're like when you oh, decided no. to take a career in it? Oh no no no! So so for a long time I didn't take take a career in it, uh, but no. When I was young, my parents encouraged me to be to do it because it's a form of expression. I seem to be really happy doing it. So my parents were never unsupportive in that regard. But like most immigrant parents, are like you need a real job. Yeah, <laughs> it's like I mean, doctor. You know. Well, well, actually, like what part of Portugal are they from? Uh, they're from the Azores Islands. Like most. If you meet Portuguese people in the Bay Area, they're almost all Islanders. Right. But at the same time, they have a real appreciation, like most places in Europe, for the art. For, for... Yeah, because it's, 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 you, I think, you know, especially if you look at. Because they see it not only through their artists, but they see art through their architecture or just the, the way the houses are built in certain places. In... Right. You look at some of the neighborhoods here in San Jose, or you, I mean, if you look where little Portugal is, like, you know, the, the, there's the big church. It's such a Catholic name. The Church of the Five Wounds. It's like, like man, that is so macabre. That is just like, the Church of the... That sounds bad. Really? It's, and yeah. you go inside. It's like, it's built like a 16th century, I think it's 16th century Manueline Portuguese church. Uh-huh. And then you go around the neighborhood, and I can tell it's a Portuguese neighborhood because they always have a little blue and white tiled, like, saint, you know, things on, on the doors. Like, yeah, this is my people. <laughs> Um, so I figure you know they'll be much a bit more appreciated, uh, or at least will be soft on you when it came to you. I, I think I think I think art. my parents appreciated it. Period. Like especially my dad. My dad was always incredibly supportive of you know if my son's got an itch to scratch, and it's like you know not crack uh, or something that qualifies as a felony. Cool. It was <laughs> my dad was a little bit uh, off the typical. Typical track in that regard. Very supportive of both of his kids. Kind of like, hey, as long as you guys are doing good by the rest of the universe, you're doing fine by me. Well, I know work was he in. My dad was a postal worker for like 30 years. Oh wow! You know, he retired a couple of years ago, um, only to to uh, you know, like he he doesn't do sedentary really well. So he meet like six months later became a crossing guard. <laughs> no, that's good. He stays active in the community. Oh yeah, no, my dad, my dad's a, my dad's actually a great role model. Like my dad in some ways is hyper traditional, you know, old Portuguese codger, right? He's like, goes to church every Sunday. He participates in a bunch of church stuff, but he also like writes a lot. Like he's written a couple of plays. He's written, uh, he writes, you know, random things for like, there's like a Portuguese radio station in Ottawa, Canada that he's written a couple of things for. He does all this random stuff. My dad is like hyper, super cool. Like he's, and he's also like one of like 
maybe seven people on planet Earth that can carry that Tom Selleck mustache and not look like a pedophile. <laughs> so, like, my dad just rocks all the way around. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, so he kind of left a, a pretty good, a pretty good. Uh, but, but he 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 was he was a writer. And I think uh, you got that creative yeah. gene in you. Yeah. No, my dad. My dad. Uh, apparently, when he was a kid, had played saxophone a little bit. My dad was a big sporty guy, so my dad was into sports and he was into intellectual endeavors. Like you know, uh, he, was pro, he was pro democracy in a country that didn't that had a dictator. That was kind of edgy. Yeah. So, <laughs> and that may have been a, a big part of like my whole interest in political science was was that stuff. Do you feel like they, your father introduced you to political science? Maybe not directly, but, you know, you grew up, you know, you heard the stories from other members of the family as well. Like, they're like, we left, left Portugal because of Salazar and Caetano and all this stuff. And you, so you got, it was at least partially molded into your head that this is where the family came from. And here's why the family came here, right? So at that point, like, oh, okay, you know, it, it sits resident there, maybe in the background. And then as you get older and you're trying to find things that interest you, you start to read more about that or like, you know, I kind of tying back to the Middle Eastern thing. Like one of the things I became fascinated with was, was autocratic governments. Like how do, how do people allow, quote unquote, allow themselves to be taken over by autocratic states and, or autocratic regimes. And initially I had like this big thing for uh, Muammar Gaddafi. He's fascinating. And part of my interest in him was like him and, uh, you know, Salazar, Portugal's former dictator, were both really, really weird. They're, they're like, they're weird outliers on the dictator spectrum because most dictators fall into a pretty square column of, you know, controlling asshole. Right. That's pretty much like, what are you? I want to control everything and get all this stuff for myself. Okay. Those two are totally bonzo weird. Were they still autocrats? Absolutely. Would, would I want to live in their, absolutely, would I want to live in their countries? Absolutely not. But as personalities and like how they governed, totally, completely off the bonzo scale. Do you feel like there's traits of that in, uh, in Trump? President-elect Trump? I don't know. You know, I'm still trying to make heads or tails of Trump in a lot of ways. So, I mean, part of me... Because in a sense, like, just seeing the images uh, post-elections, but he looks very distressed. Or I don't think he realized that he has much as control as he thought he would. I think... So, the, you know, I put the... If I put the poli sci hat on, and I don't get... Because I'm not very good at ideological stuff, which, of course, ends up irritating everybody that has an ideological particular thing to, like, grind on. Right. I I don't think he is going to be... Do I think there's a real threat to the way he will run an administration? Yeah, I do. Do I think it is going to be... Do I think it's likely to be as apocalyptic as some people make it out to be? No. I think... Um, so if we look at, like, the last two administrations. We look at Bush, we look at Obama, because this is good for contrast. Um, George Bush, pretty inept president, but had a very adept staff. Like all of us, most of his staff were like yeah. old time mechanics, right? These are guys that knew how the machinery of government worked, mm -hmm. right, or, right or wrong, whatever you like or dislike about him. They knew how the machine worked and he got some stuff through that, that, that he wanted. And there's a bunch of stuff he didn't. And same thing with Obama. Obama, like like him or dislike him, I think he is probably the most. He's the best chess player that the the presidency, the person who sat in that chair, he's been the most astute. Like the joke I make is like he is hashtag long game. That dude, like here is a man who is of you know mixed race parentage who made it through the Chicago political machine, which is not known for for lacking corruption, right. pretty much scandal free. 
all the way into the presidency. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, oh, he's inexperienced. Oh, like, no, the guy, the guy is smart. You don't make it there that fast, that well, and last for eight years, pretty much scandal-free. That's not luck. That's a level of, of calculation that's, that's okay, he's, he is in the 1%, my brain pan is fully occupied and on. Um, he didn't get everything he wanted through. He got some stuff and not everything else. So, you, you know, you've got this, these are people who know how the machine works or have people on staff that know how the machine works. And the machine is bigger than any one of the players inside of it, right? So you're like, it doesn't matter. To some degree, Trump will do something stupid. To some degree, Trump will be prevented from doing other things that are stupid. It's the what stupid thing makes it past past the filtering of the system is the, kind of the, the question mark. It's like, and um, and does it last long enough to go to the midterms in two years? Because he's only got two years. He's got two. He's going to be a president for four years if he doesn't get impeached. But he's got two years to either do something that like makes his base love him more. Or he's, it's just going to be another, you know, bloodbath in the elections, in the midterms. Because people will be like, you had two years, you did nothing, you failed. Let's make, let's make Congress blue again. Right. But I'm more talking about the pers- personality traits, like, similar to Gaddafi. I, I, I feel like, in a sense, because he, 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 he comes he, from a place of control. He has, he has a company that he has almost absolute control. He's great, he's great at PR in the same way. So, yeah. you know, Gaddafi uh, was spectacularly good at, at, talking in multiple voices. He would say certain things to his internal audience, which you could say is like the greater, the greater Middle East, the, you know, kind of the, the, the oil, oil, you know, the, the, the OPEC countries. And then you had the firebrand who was kind of just poking the hornet's, you know, nest of, of Western countries just to kind of go, yeah, I dare you. I, I dare you. I dare you. Um, and he was just kind of playing them off of each other. Like, I mean, you know, uh, I don't know if Trump is as astute. Mm. Like, most of the, the the major ways that, that OPEC has run these days is a huge part of it was influenced by by Gaddafi's maneuvers over the years. Um, you know, so he's left a stamp on an entire, you know, major industry. I don't know if Trump has actually left that much of a major mark on, on say, stakes. Yeah. I mean, uh, some Middle Eastern uh, intellectuals claim that Gaddafi was actually even in the process of developing the Arab states uh, by turning their currency into gold, or at least a, a better way that, that that goes against what the IMF usually does. He, he did something really, really. He did a couple things that were radically different for the area for the time. So he was the first guy to have. Um, he took over all. He took majority stake ownership of, of all the, the petrol companies in Libya at the time, and said, "We have a fifty one percent stake in everything. We're not going to be all foreign owned," which obviously let, gave him leverage of, of influence. When the embargoes started to kick in and all the oil, American oil companies got had to pull out, he made uh, under the table deals saying, "Hey, when you guys get over this." Uh, on your side of the thing, we'll let the con- we, we won't actually liquidate the contracts. We'll leave them in place, and you can start off where you left off. Or you can pick up where you where, where you left off, which you know, in a way, was fairly astute because it meant that the that the the, the petro companies had a motivation to lobby for normalization of relations with Libya. It's like, oh, so he can he can play he can play this game. He can you know he's going to act like as utterly crazy as he can because it, it it's. It's great PR. In that regard, he's just like Trump, right? Gaddafi had an entire um, 
he had bodyguards that were a female. So he had female commandos and machine guns. Like, like that's totally atypical. Right. <laughs> um, and of course he looked kind of like, he looked kind of like a really weird Muppet. Mm-hmm. Right. And his dress sense. I mean, he wore stuff that I don't even think Liberace would wear. And, and he just like, he was utterly ridiculous, but at the same time, he was really, really astute in terms of how he managed his regime. And you're like, okay, that's really trippy. I don't know if Trump's going to be that smart. Like, I'm just looking at the people he's, he's putting into his cabinet and, and some of them are just staggeringly stupid. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's go back to San Jose. Uh, I want to continue where we kind of left off with your father and his writings. What kind of play was he writing? He wrote, he wrote a couple different things. Like the one that I remember was like, I was like eight or nine and he wrote, he wrote a play about a, a Portuguese radio station. And I'd like to say that I remember more about it because it ended up being made into, it ended up being made into a play in Santa Clara uh, for the Portuguese community uh, centered around St. Clair's church. Cause that's where I went to, that's where I went to church as a kid. And that's where I went to grade school as a kid. Uh, and I actually was, I acted in it. I was, one, I was one of the DJs. I remember almost nothing else about it. So I was like eight. <laughs> you were an eight-year-old playing a radio DJ. I myself and and like one of the daughter of one of my parents' like closest friends. Like the, the two of us starred in a play that had like you know six people in it, and and it was written. It was it, I don't know why they decided to have kids playing it because like if I recall correctly, like the actual text of the play was for adults. Yeah. Like it was written, so we had to kind of pretend that we were adults, which probably made it seem even more. Maybe there's some it, symbolic metaphor there. You know, maybe oh. I maybe they just thought it'd be really cute to have kids. Like, well, that's a good draw, right? Right. <laughs> it's, it's a good draw. It's like it's support. It's like it's it's it, you know any ethnic community that's centered around like a church. Like it, it's it's a captive audience, man. Anything you throw in front of them, they're like they're going to be there every Sunday or wherever the, the event is. It's like oh, it's it's you know. Was it anything uh, that was scandalous? Maybe. Because I, I know in Iran, a lot of filmmakers use young children to to put in like some some agendas in their films that are for adults, but they get away with it because they're using children actors. Interesting. No, I I I, I don't think it was anything like that. I, you know, I don't think my dad's that edgy. So <laughs> was he rebelling against the church? No, definitely not my dad. My my dad my dad is very very happily Catholic. He's just not fire and brimstone Catholic. You know, he's like, you know, he's, he's like, God is cool Catholic. My mom, my mom is fire and brimstone Catholic. My mom is the kind of person that can call God collect on the phone and just go <laughs> smote him. <So>. And <laughs> <laughs> what line of work was she in? Uh, she was a, my mom was a mom. Well, was a mom. I mean, I think when she first came to the country, she, she worked at like, um, tomato packing plant. She worked at the Levi Strauss factory for a while. And then it was homemaker. Yeah. But not. You know, uh, my mother, you know, was not, is not a, a passive person, right? So she was active in church as well. She did stuff with the community. She was, you know, she is, she's a doer. She's not a just sit at home mom kind of person, but, but default setting, you know, homemaker. Right. And it feels like both of your parents are that way. I mean, it's amazing that your father not only wrote a play, but kind of got it together and produced it. I mean, that's pretty cool. I think, you know, I think I got lucky. Uh, my parents immigrated at the same time as my, my aunt, my mom's sister and my grandparents and I actually grew up in a duplex so my brother and I and my parents were in one half of the duplex and my aunt and my grandparents and eventually my grandparents moved out to a little cottage a block or two away my aunt and eventually her husband and her kids lived next door 
So I had this very, very kind of nuclear, close-knit group of people. Really, I mean, it was a good environment, I think, to grow up in when you're kind of a, uh, when you're a hyper-nerdy kid um, who doesn't really, you know, like when you when you need a group of people to like support you, that that's like a good place to be. Mm-hmm. You're kind of guaranteed, like, okay. And this was like early 90s, right? Oh, this was 80s or 90s, 80s. yeah. Because I'm, I'm, I'm in my early 40s now, so. Okay, so what kind of a, of a, describe a nerdy kid in the 80s. Like, what kind of stuff were you into? I, it wasn't even like your typical nerdy or what, what gets passed for nerdy now. Like, you know, Big Bang Theory kind of nerdy. Um, I try to explain this to people and it's kind of hard for them to absorb. But I had no friends. None. Zero. From about birth until about... 10 or 11, 12 years of age. You weren't homeschooled, were you? No. I just, I I just, I was the kid that everybody picked on. I was mercilessly picked on because I, I, you know, you're a kid that doesn't know how to assimilate yet. You haven't figured out how to assimilate yet. Right. Because at home, your parents are trying to figure out how to become, my parents very actively decided to become American citizens, but that's a process, right? Especially when you are still learning the language, you're still learning the the, the social norms and and mores and all that stuff. And you're trying to plug in. And you're born into that, so you're kind of you're part of the learning process. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I didn't know how to fit in. I was lousy at it. And kids can be cruel as hell. Yeah. Uh, uh, proof positive. Catholic school in in the late seventies, early eighties. Kids are bastards. <laughs> they are absolutely and 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 the the, yeah. the nuns did not help because you know if anything, Catholic school you know it prefers a certain level of conformity. Uh huh. And um, when the normal good kids are picking on you, it must be because there's something wrong with you. So, like, you lose you lose that battle because you're outnumbered by by your peers, quote unquote. And then you lose because the nuns just pile it on on top of it. And then because your parents don't know the culture, they pile it. Like, why are you making the nuns upset? It's like I'm not doing anything. <laughs> I'm just I'm just noodling around. So you just like you lost all the way around growing up. But I, I had a very isolated childhood outside of my family. Like I, my family was the, the the core of it, but I, as far as like you know, friends, I didn't have any of them. So I spent most of my time so you know, kind of absorbed in things like, you know, the arts, reading. I read voraciously. Uh, I remember in 3rd grade my parents bought a world book encyclopedia set. And by 5th grade I had read the set. Yeah. But did you understand it? Most of it, yeah. Like I had, a, you know, I, I was one of those kids that um, got crap grades all the way until college, mm-hmm. um, but tested insanely high. In Catholic high school or in, uh, in Catholic grade school in the eighties, they had these SRA tests, which would test you know your skill set on a series of subjects. And math was the only one that I was like on my grade point. Like if I was in fourth grade, it's like fourth grade math, and then for everything else, I was like twelfth grade. So high IQ. Um, high high capacity and then just like I couldn't I couldn't be pissed to, to care about any of the stuff that I was studying so I you know I was like a straight C student and were you expressing yourself uh, with 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 more paintings out there were you putting yourself out I didn't there really, I didn't really start painting until like junior high uh, but I, I drew constantly everywhere and anywhere and um, you know I would try to just you know it was, I, I didn't take any art class any art classes I'll tell you what they taught you in like elementary school it's like we're gonna paste stuff screw you that's boring um until until like you know i got i went to deanza like right after high school so i I took art classes then because i wanted to have something formal because i'd already started to learn how to paint and do stuff actually in high school i got put on ap art which was a class of one 
because the art teacher just kind of went, you don't, I got nothing I can offer you. I have nothing I can do for you. Here's yeah. the Bank of America award for art. We're just going to put you in the art class, label you as AP, and then just let you do your own thing. Wow, that's pretty nice. That's that pretty was cool. that was that was cool because I got to just I, I basically got forty five minutes a day for a year in high school where it was just like, what are you doing? Just doodling, <laughs> just doing some shit. That's and, all. and I know you've been in music too. You, you were a drummer. When did the music come into your life? Always loved music. Music was a lot like everything else, where it's like I grew up in a home uh, where I grew up with a lot of Portuguese folk music and like what I'll call lusophonic music, lusophonic music being anything that has, you know, Portuguese as a primary language. So I would hear like pop from Angola or Mozambique uh, or Brazil uh, on the radio. And my dad had, both of my parents fell in love with country music. So as a child, I had to watch a lot of the Barbara Mandrell show, which I don't, I mean, well, the brunette was kind of cute, but other than that, really not a show worth watching. Um, and Johnny Cash and stuff. So I still like Johnny Cash and Dwight Yoakam and, and stuff like that. Uh, my dad loved opera, which I still don't fully have wrapped my head around. Um, so I grew up with a lot of different things. And of course, it's the early 80s. So I would get on the radio and just go through the dial. Uh, and since I didn't have any social clicks in school to like put parameters up for, we're going to listen to New Wave or we're going to listen to hair metal. I never got that. Once again, it was like, so hair metal it was and then post-punk and then... Um, you know, like any distorted noise that was on KSCU, um, you know, I listened to everything. So once again, by the time high school, college rolled around, I, you know, it's like, or MTV, right? MTV would play everything. So it's like, it's Prince, it's Public Enemy, it's Heart, it's Fleetwood Mac. It's like... But what do you feel you gravitated towards more? Everything. I, I just absorbed stuff. So I'll give you I'll give you the, the corollary because I've stopped doing this the last couple of years, but there was a period of about 15, 20 years where I bought music at such volume. I probably owned somewhere between eight to 10,000 records, cassettes, CDs. Man, the digital age must have made you realize, oh shit, I've, <laughs> I should have saved a, money. I've still got a lot of stuff in storage, but yeah, no, it's like I, my, my musical tastes are just, they are, are really all over the map. So when you became a drummer, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure this was years later. Was this during yeah. high school or college? I got my first drum kit my senior year of high school. High school. And what kind of music were you playing? What kind of bands were you trying to join? Uh, let's see. I was in a cover band for a bit. What kind of uh, music were you covering? Oh, we were covering like uh, like Red Hot Chili Peppers and Alice in Chains. Uh, the guitarist and I were big Rush fans. So we would occasionally try to throw something in there, which of course everyone was just like, why are you playing that? What's like, wrong with Rush? That's not a, a damn that's thing. That's an awesome band. There is not a damn thing wrong with Rush. Um, it was just it was one of those things where it's like you know for for party rock and grooves, okay. it's 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 really hard to sell them on on YYZ. It's like where's the vocals? There aren't any. What, what's 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 going on? A lot of notes. Yeah, that's <laughs> we're just we're just packing the notes in. <laughs> uh, and then. Um, I started working with a lot of the local bands, not as a performer, but uh, almost everything else. Like, this is when the Cactus Club was around and the FX, which is now the Ritz. Did you get to perform at the Cactus Club? I, I wish. No, I got to work in the Cactus Club in the booth. So I did I did lights for a couple of the bands that I worked with. Uh, How was that experience? That was actually really trippy. Like, there was a, there was a ritual you had to go through. Um, and this was in the era when uh, there was a local personality named Wedge Bannon, who was the sound guy at the Cactus. Wedge was an awesome, awesome dude. 
Uh, as the story goes, Wedge was eventually hired by Slayer. They played a gig at the Cactus and they hired him on the spot and he left. And I guess now he's like worked with like, you know, the Deftones and a bunch of other big name bands and lives in LA and he's, he's, he's become quite the guy. But he started at the Cactus. And I remember that Wedge would be working a sound and he didn't talk to Wedge because Wedge was busy. You get to the light thing and you never knew which lights worked and which lights didn't. So you had to get in there early. So you had to check every single light so you could figure out, okay, you know, you, you, you little roll of tape out. You put your tape and you like mark which lights did not work so you knew what you could actually move and change <laughs> during the show. Right. Uh, and that was really fun. Uh, so I, I did that. I did. Uh, how, how, how did you even get a gig like that? Uh, so. My last year of high school, I was at St. Lawrence Academy, and uh, there was this really, really cute girl in class who was way taller than me, and uh, we hung out a lot, and eventually I found out that uh, she knew a bunch of local musicians, so I just started hanging out with them. Uh, thanks, Jen. And um, and I just, I just kind of did the rounds, and I was also, you know, I had been hanging out enough downtown to where um, I'd gotten to know... The, the burgeoning cover band scene, like there was a band called Uncle Melvin, which was around for years and years and years. And I did a bunch of posters for them. I filmed some of their 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 performances uh, at Tunes. If anybody remembers that place. Um, Man, you were like really in it. You you were really into the, the whole music scene that, that was blossoming here in San the, Jose the, in the 90s. The 90s in San Jose. Like I, I'm really happy the way San Jose is right now, like where it's going. And, and I don't think it's I don't think it's peaked yet. Um, yeah, I feel like we're still in progress. It's definitely in progress. The '90s, when I try to explain the '90s to people, you know, who who were not there, which is most people in San Jose, like right. I mean, there was just a massive flight out at, after the dot bomb. Right. Um, it was really a good scene. I mean, we had we had a fantastic set of clubs, some of which were, were doing amazingly well. You know, you had the Cactus, you had the FX, um, you had Cafe Matisse, even though its its owner was a punk. Um, where was Cafe Matisse located? Uh, kind of where the like next to where the Continental is, like kind of where the adult food court, the the sofa the sofa, sofa market is. The adult food court. I call it the adult food court. <laughs> it's like because like you know food court you think of like you know fourteen year old kids at the mall, but right. like you know so, right. the sofa market or like San Pedro Square, those are adult food courts. <laughs> right. that, that's where the there's food, a bar in there. There's a bar in there. The food quality is good. Like you have to actually like behave like a human being in there. Right. Like yeah, that's, that's a food court for grownups. Got it. Um, and um, it was right like right there. Um, there was there was you know a couple other spots. There was uh, the Ajax Lounge, which was my favorite place. It's the area that's actually above Cafe Stretch now, which is it's closed. Um. Right, because that, that was split at one point. Those yeah, there was the the Ulipia restaurant down the below and, and the top and Ajax and Ajax was Ajax was something else. I still is that, it the same owner? Uh, same family. Yeah, the Borkenhagens own that own that building. Uh, they're you know those guys are those guys are great. Uh, Maxwell and Steve and and Co. Uh, they I actually recently did a show there. I had my I had a whole bunch of jazz portraits showing showing there. They were really generous with that. Uh, so yeah, they still have the building and I, you know, Cafe Strip is my second office. So I, I, you know, if I have to work from home in the evenings, I don't stay at home. I walk across the street to, uh, to stretch. It's mm -hmm. like plug in, get a sandwich, uh, and just hang out. It's a great place. Yeah. And it seems like where it seems like, uh, the rock scene was, was blossoming in towns of the nineties. seems like the jazz scene is kind of blossoming now. I it, think, it, I think it, that's it had, the thing today. It had its moments. So the thing in the early nineties that was big was acid jazz, which is kind of where like DJ culture and, and, and danceable like soul jazz were kind of mingling. You saw bands like the brand new heavies and Jamiroquai kind of come up. And, 
um, the Ajax was really, really big into that. They got some really great acts in there. They would also get like big name acts, like acts that would play it, like Yoshi's would play it, Ajax. Like, you know, uh, Billy Cobham, who used to play with like Miles Davis and the Mahavishnu Orchestra played there, you know, and Ajax was a small space. You're like, yeah. you're getting, how, how'd you score that one? <laughs> right? Um, which is kind of like now, like Stritch gets some really, really insanely good talent in there. And you're like, how, how'd you guys get, how, man, sweet. <laughs> Fuck yeah. All right, Maxwell. Um, and the agenda eventually opened up. Um, also run by a punk. Um, you know, and the agenda, you know, brought in other acts as well. They brought also brought in kind of like dub reggae and stuff. This is when I don't know if you were around for the band Inca Inca. So we actually had kind of a mini, mini reggae scene in San Jose. Uh, Inca Inca was this, an amazingly great reggae band that lasted until I think 96, 97, right around there. Um, oddly enough, their, their genesis came from like a punk band, uh, called Sticky which among other things had like a guitar player that eventually went to like MDC. Wow. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, there, San Jose has had an interesting, there's something about San Jose that I keep coming back to. I, like I like San Jose. It's not San Francisco. It's not Oakland. I get it. And we're not as cool or as big or as whatever, but there's something about San Jose and otherness, a, a underdog under uh, otherness to it. I just kind of dig. Mm-hmm. And there's a weird, it's it's a quirkiness. It's like that show Northern Exposure. Like it's weird, but you don't know how it's weird because it's just kind of it sits there latently. You have to kind of like really get into it before you realize what it is. I totally agree with you in a sense that just the other day, I got uh, I went to go get tacos at a taco stand at a place I've never been to, and I thought I knew San Jose, but it was, it was a place that was just past Nagley Park. It, it was uh, like by MacArthur, I think. I'm not too sure, but I'm like, this is a pretty cool spot to run down, but has an interesting vibe. And then I'm like, you know what? There's certain pockets in San Jose that have their own weirdness to it. Oh, yeah. It's like every time I meet somebody new, they're like, I'll just use the taco example. Like, where do you get the best tacos? Tlaquepaque. That's the safest one. Screw Lavic. Nothing wrong with Lavic. Just saying, if it's 3 a.m. and you're really, really like jonesing for something, that'll work, but... Yeah, go to Tlaquepaque. Where's that at? Willow Glen. Willow on Glen. Lincoln. And, you know, the thing is, it's like, it, and, and anyone that lives in the Willow Glen area, yeah. like, if you ask them, where do I go get talk, they, they point right to it, like, immediately. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a genetically deep reaction to, like, do you need that kind of food? You go to that place over there. <laughs> um, and that's, yeah, it's neighborhoods, right? It's, you know, it's Japantown. Some of them are obvious. Like, it's Japantown. It's Willow Glen. And then if you look like, you know. You got the San Pedro Square area. They'll give you what what they think the best thing is versus say you know sofa. But yeah, there's other areas like you know, having grown up in Santa Clara, part of my life. You know, there's the Franklin Franklin Mall, which is where like the post office is, is right by Santa Clara University, and it's like there's like the one good Thai restaurant, and there's the the there used to be like the really good dive bar that would like not card kids, so like all the you know Santa Clara U students who were underage would go there. It was nicknamed the Regal Beagle. I forget it was the Claren. That's what it used to be called. It's now something else. But we used to call it the Regal Beagle because it had like all the fantastic red naga hide you could you could ever hope to sit on, um, and smells that probably still have not been identified by science. So. Um, you know, like that was the neighborhood place you went to. It's like that was a little little po- pocket of cool things were right there. And if you were new to Santa Clara, you had no idea existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, it's like oh, you have to go there. 
So yeah, San Jose's like that. There's a whole bunch of... I just found out recently that we have a Somali restaurant in San Jose. Oh yeah, we got a couple. We do? Yeah. Hot uh, damn. On, on the, uh, <laughs> well, at least I know of a couple that are on the uh, San Carlos stretch. Oh, I had no idea. Because Ethiopian and Eritrean I've seen. Yeah. And I was like, oh, Somali? Because I'm like, I figure there's got to be, you know, I have not had Somali food yet. But I had a, I had a, I was recently in, 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 a, in a cab. And so my thing is whenever I'm in a cab, I try to, you know, guess the ethnicity of the driver. It's my yeah. thing. Because like, I'm just fascinated, once again, by people and cultures. So I just want to. So what's your ratio so far about your, your uh, guesses? Um, I'm pretty good if, if they are Southern European, Middle Eastern or, uh, or African, uh-huh. like I can tell the difference between a West African and an East African accent. I can't pin it down to something specific, but I can tell if someone is say Nigerian or from the Ivory coast versus someone from, from Somalia or Sudan or, or Ethiopia. So it's like, again, I'm, I'm, and if the fact that I can get into the region, it's like, I'm, I'm considering myself pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually the topic immediately turns to food. Because that's of course that's, that's what I'm that's interested. That's the go-to. That to, is the, to get to know someone. You got to know what they're eating. It's like it's like where is a good place to get Somali food? And you mentioned this place, Juma Chura. Like now I have to I have to go look it up. But I was like, okay, I'm gonna have to eat there. And I was just like, this is so cool. I found a new place to eat. Great. <laughs> now it seems like you're involved in the music scene in San Jose, but it, 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 at least to me, it doesn't seem you're you're much involved in the art scene. In San Jose, these, considering how prolific you are these these days. So I moved back into San Jose four years, a little bit, a little bit under four years ago, uh, and I'm kind of slowly trying to to incorporate myself into it, like very incrementally. Um, I, I almost feel like an interloper. Like when I, it's really weird to come back into San Jose, and and in some ways you you feel like because it's got such a wonderfully like robust scene that's kind of grown into it it's really really great to see because i lived in the peninsula for about six years and um i kind of forgot what was going on in san jose for the most part I, where I, in the peninsula were you living i was in san mateo uh right off of hillsdale and um i come back and 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 sherry and brian have kind of helped to foster this like gigantic well gigantic for for, for the scale of downtown san jose it was really, really great to see, but I almost feel like like an like an interloper. Like I I I, I, I kind of suffer from a chronic sense of otherness, <laughs> which may also be part of the appeal of San Jose. And um and I've I've done you know two shows quote unquote in San Jose. I I had uh, for two or three months I was at Cafe for Scotty. Um, you know Caroline there was you know incredibly incredibly sweet. That's right. You had artwork displayed at Cafe for Scotty as well. I, I, there's actually still one piece hanging there. It's in a dark little corner. Uh, it's kind of this like running joke. I just have it there to see how long it, it lasts there. And then uh, the show at um, at Stretch. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a long time, I was doing like an annual show at Chromatic uh, in Santa Clara. And I just, you know, I haven't, um, I've just been really almost too busy to put another show together and then just figure out venues. Um, because I like, I would love to have a spot at Collide. That would be, that would be awesome. Um, you know, uh, I, I actually, so here's something about San Jose that I think is interesting. So, uh, I, and you know this, so I take photos like everywhere I go in San Jose. I kind of, I'm kind of a booster for San Jose. I love your Instagram account. 
You, you have some of the coolest shit in there. Like I, I try like I try to like go like this is cool shit going on in San Jose because there is cool shit going on in San Jose. And if there's one thing that San Jose people know how to do is how to not promote what's going on in San Jose. Uh huh. Um. So I try to be an antithesis to that. And and I, I uh, at some point I forget how it actually happened, but Daniel from Content Magazine started following me on on my Instagram account. And eventually I had this. It was really strange. So like I've been a fan of Sh- uh, Shannon Amadon for a long time. Uh, her art is amazing. And then uh, I got this this email from from the content guys going, would you like to be in Content Magazine? At which point I just kind of went, what? Because it was, it was so out of the blue, so totally random. Right. Uh, and of course I said yes. And, and you know, I meet Daniel and, and he, you know, he does the photo shoot inside my apartment slash studio. And uh, the interview was done by Shannon. So I was kind of like sitting there having this weird meta fanboy moment you know it was really really cool and that's like as close to plugged into the scene as i've been i've tried to go to as many content events as i can because it's like you know that's something that like is a san jose thing to me like that is the epitomizes my experience in san jose but i have not plugged myself fully into the art scene in san jose because i almost feel like I, I i there's something about it that i feel like i'm interloping it's like i'm not quite yeah I, I get you. I feel the same yeah. way too. I feel like, like you know, like the the uh, the whole sofa district culture for the longest time. I've been I've been hanging there a lot. But as a recent, I'm like I, I don't think I. I, I think you should actually know. like hold a podcast like at at the next sofa fair. Uh, well, I'm in talks with with uh, one or two organizations about doing a live taping. Yeah, I think um, that would be just that'd be awesome. I'd be down for that. But in general, like that feeling of like. Yeah, I, I'd love to be part of this, but am I really? Am I really part of this? I don't know. We are. I just, you know, I, I, I have to keep reminding myself. We're supported, of course. Like, people do love our stuff. And, and it's just like, you have that, that, that voice in your head where you're like, I'm not sure if I belong here necessarily. But I, I dig it. What's going on, though? No, it's, it's, it, San Jose has a really good scene. Like, I, I, it's interesting. So, you know, I live above the original Joe's building. And I have kind of this ritual that happens several times, sometimes several times a day. I go downstairs to Cafe Frascati and get my coffee, maybe a donut, maybe a sandwich, depending on how hungry I am. And it seems like everybody in that coffee shop is musically skilled or artistically skilled or both. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that's an extreme example, but there seems to be like just, you know, like at Stritch, you know, there's Maxwell, you know, he's in one or two bands and you got Dominic, the drummer, um, you know, it's like it seems like half the staff there is in bands. There's Frascati. There's like it just seems to be like every other random place. There's like people who do stuff, not just the day gig. And it's not just they do stuff and they kind of muddle around in their bedroom. It's like no, they gig. No, they do stuff. They actually perform. They get out there. They write material. They 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 do. Um, and there seems to be even collectively. This kind of, are we actually doing this? Are we? <laughs> Is this the thing? Like, we all seem to be doing this, and we're all seem to be doing it in roughly proximity to each other. Right. Is this real? Like, we don't actually. This is this is one of those things where San Jose is considerably different than like San Francisco or Oakland, where they kind of assert there is the Oakland scene, right? There's, right. you know, and there's San Francisco. They've got their scenes. San Jose has a scene. It's got a whole bunch of stuff going on. I guess it's a lack of self-awareness, do you think? It, it, it's almost like it feels like a dream. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I went to the last content party um, 
you know, and, and, and there was a band performing, um, Shiloh May from, from Frascati and her brother. And all of a sudden I'm forgetting their name. Oh, like, Bird and Willow. Bird and Willow. That's what it is. Great performance. At the Forger? Where was it? It wasn't the Forger. It was at the, um, the Art Arc. Or no, the Citadel. It was at the Citadel. That Citadel. was the one that I went to. Uh, another great spot, right? As of recently, I, I, I went to that place and it's pretty cool. And, and you're like, oh, this is, this is, this is great. And they're performing great. And you kind of, you, you, you give them thanks afterward and like, hey, great gig. And they're, they're almost kind of like, really? Are you sure? It's like, yes, this is <laughs> fine. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not going to lie. I'm not good at lying. So if you sucked, I'd be like, oh, it's okay. Yeah. It's like, but no, it's like they were really good. And so you just kind of like, yeah, okay. This, and, and it seems to be like, I really have not actually seen a shitty band yet in San Jose. That's from San Jose. Hmm. You know, I've seen, you know, some bands are better than others, certainly. And some of that's due to like either the age of the musicians, like how seasoned they are and how, how good their chemistry is. But there, are, I have not seen a bad gig yet. Well, you live on top of the Ritter and Joe's, which is pretty much on top of Frascati. And I mean, the open mic scene of Frascati, I'm sure you've noticed, has grown. Yes. And it's gotten better because thankfully, because the, the first year I moved into town, I I really just wanted to, to stab things. Yeah. You'd, you'd sit there, I'd sit there, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to muscle through this. And it was like, it was like, it just fucking hurt. And you could actually hear it from your apartment? No, no, I would come down to see it. Like, that was my thing. I wanted to like, go and watch it. And you'd like, get like the one or two like, really good people. Like, they would be like a slam poet or something. You're like, that, that guy or that, that girl's really got it going on. Like, they're, they're, you know, maybe they're not even fully formed yet, but the, 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 the the germ of the right thing, like they're gonna, they're gonna do something if they keep at this, because they're good. They're fundamentally like they've got a, a really sound thing going on. And then you'd have people who were just like, "Why are you on stage? No, why are you breathing?" <laughs> I, I remember a couple of Christmases ago, some uh, guy. I, I it was the only. It's the only time I've ever left for Scotty mid mid performance, like where I came in to watch a performance and left. Uh huh. Was somebody was going to start doing like uh, erotic poetry about reindeers? Holy shit! It was Chris, Christmas Christmas themed erotic poetry, and I went no, no, no. <laughs> I, whatever's going to come out of your mouth next, it's going to make me want to punch an infant, and I'm just not going to be. I'm not going to well, go. Wait, you know, when you lack talent, you make up with being different. I guess. Well, it's like so. Like I am really foul mouth. It's been really funny. I have not cussed that much on this this podcast. I'm. I'm Feel free to cuss all you want. I just, I just haven't had the particular urge, but I'm known for for saying some pretty horrendous stuff. Um, and and you know I but I do believe that comedy is one of those things where it's it's like you know the first the first refuge of people that lack talent is just to be just, just a comedian. It's not even just to be a comedian. It's to be. It's just, let's just throw really really offensive stuff out there, and it's like some of the most offensive comics that are really, really good are also really, really intelligent. Like I think of a Robin Williams uh, or a George Carlin, a Lewis black uh, for, for, for those that are not into American comedy that like, if you really want to hear something edgy, listen to Frankie Boyle mm -hmm. from, from Scotland, uh, a man who has been censored so many times by the BBC. He probably has whiplash, <laughs> um, you know, but the, their comedy is very, very intelligent as well as like, scathingly edgy right there are some comics that have shown up at Friscotti where you're just like wow okay this guy this guy's pretty astute and then there are others where it's just like if you open your mouth again i am going to voltron fist your face yeah i'm just and most of the time it's the young ones just this past week i was like it's always the younger ones that are like the most likely to say some like i had like a 
like an like a seventeen year old trying to talk about fist fucking, and it's like, come on, dude, <laughs> you're seventeen. You like it just the joke doesn't work not because it's not funny, it's because you have no credibility it's, it's, behind. Yeah, you. it's not. It's not. You can't. You can't buy it. it it's, yeah. it's like you're like, dude, no, really. <laughs> you, you just it's, it's try again in a decade. Yeah, bitch. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's it, it's that part. That part's kind of hard to swallow. Uh, so I actually, you know, I don't go to the comedy night as often uh, as I do just the normal open mic. Uh, but once again, a lot of great talent. Some of it, some of it's even just quirky. Like, okay, this guy's not going to get a record deal, but it's kind kind of cool to watch. Um, there's some cool characters in San Jose that show up at at, at random random places. Like, there's. I'll just call these the old dudes because they're both fairly aged. I don't know their names, but one shows up at the jazz jam at Stritch and one shows up every once in a while at Frascati. Uh, the guy shows up at Frascati, sometimes plays the piano and seems to do like everything, like his voice is old and creaking and he'll do like these very strange kind of... Old guy. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, he, yeah. He, I, th- I think once he did like a weird kind of Dixieland take on Billy Joel, I'm like... Sounds like you're talking about The Professor. That sounds like yeah, maybe. There's a character for Scotty, an old gentleman who looks who's very skinny. Yeah, and he plays the piano and kind of has that Tom Waits kind of gravelly voice. Yeah, and he's just kind of like he's like you're just wondering like how stable is this individual? That sir is called the Professor. We don't know why we call him the Professor. He just he is just has the name the Professor. And and I'm just like you know what I I would not go buy an album of that. But whenever he shows up at the open mic, that's that's kind of cool and refreshing. It's like, okay, this something's going to happen. Yeah. And it's going to be unexpected. Like, no matter what weird, and I can think of some pretty weird shit, whatever I'm thinking, he's not going to do that. And uh, the other one is this guy who actually is very, very, he's a great saxophone player. And he's this just very small, um, white-haired dude with glasses. Um, and he shows up very often at various jazz gigs around San Jose, but at the jazz jam at Stritch and he'll play a couple songs, but he usually sings at least one. And he's kind of like, he's kind of like this, this, this albino Louis Armstrong. He's got this, <laughs> he's got this voice like, I've got skies of blue. That's amazing. Clouds of white. And you know, and, I, I gotta check that out. And, and he's really, really good. Uh-huh. And, and you're like, what, how is this guy? Like, where, you, he seems to show up out of the ether, play at these open mics, and then poof, he's, he's disappeared into the ether again. And you're like, "Why? Somebody give this guy like a full gig. He's good. Yeah, like let him do give his him thing. a chance. You know, and and San Jose's full of characters like that. So I, that's another thing that I like about it. Like you just never know, like what's like, oh, what's going to show up? Ooh, that was a surprise. Uh-huh. I like that. I like being surprised. And it's. It, it's great that you you find it here in San Jose. I mean, because you you've traveled all over the place. I mean, you you've been to New York. I like been... I like traveling. I, I I do. I don't do as much as I would like, but I definitely enjoy traveling. I keep I keep coming back to the Bay Area. Like I don't. I still haven't found a place that I I would consider more home than here. I debated like moving to Lisbon for a year or moving to Sydney for a year. They're just places that I've wanted to like. What would it be like to sit in a particular spot for more than a couple of days or a week or two? But the Bay Area feels like home. Like the things that I like to do, it's all kind of right here. Now, do uh, do you feel like there's a factor of that that plays into your art, or do you feel like your art comes from another place? Well, it comes from everywhere, from anywhere and everywhere. Like I'm, I'm inspired by almost anything. I get, I get, 
you know, I've had abstract paintings that are that are inspired by some of the most mundane shit imaginable because I'll I'll kind of view space as a series of disconnected objects that are like, you know, I can look at the background that's like in you know behind you and just kind of go, it's a series of kind of shapes and colors. And I could turn it into an abstract painting and you would have no idea where it was derived from, but it could be derived from the most mundane stuff. Like, oh, I looked at that teapot and it gave me an idea. Yeah. Well, I'm really inspired by your 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 hand drawn stuff, especially uh, you you really know how to draw women very well. Like, I like women. Yeah, <laughs> obviously, but Fuck. no, but you you have a certain style to it that has like an old classical. What's the word I'm looking for? It's like okay, this is where it might, it's fleeting my memory. These these words of art world, but but it has that classical jazzy uh, curves to them. Um, I like a lot of the classic illustrators, like you know guys like Bob Peake and Max Maxfield Parrish and uh, Norman Rockwell, um, and then more contemporary illustrators like Bill Sienkiewicz, who's a, who's a big influence and stuff. They kind of go for that. like you know I, I never disliked digital art. I've always and I use digital a lot in my work, but I don't start from it. I have to start with like a pencil or a pen or a brush on a surface, and I think that kind of comes out like that's where. That's where stuff starts. Um, and I like... Uh, interesting story. I'm sure my dad will be embarrassed that I say this because um, I started I started drawing women before I really knew what to do with them. Yeah. Uh, and that is a horribly chauvinistic statement, so it's not intended that way, but it's more like I had no idea that, you know... Uh, I just liked drawing figures, but particularly women at a pretty young age. And I was like eight or nine, and I had drawn, I think, one of my first nudes. Um, I was probably going through like a big like Italian painting period where I was just like, okay, this is the neatest stuff or like, you know, Roman, I always like Roman statues and stuff. So. Was it the encyclopedia that he gave you? No, it was probably from like some art book at like the Santa Clara Public Library because I, I would just get stacks of them. Um, you know, my dad kind of comes in and he, you know, he looks over my drafting table and he was like, mmm, very nice. <laughs> Cause that's, that's my dad. My dad has this very strange delivery. Like, so my humor, like my dad has this really neat delivery of things. He, he uses very pithy statements, uh, and facial gestures. And, and it's, it's always very suggestive, even when there's nothing to it. Yeah. It's more like just to egg people on. Like my dad has this thing where he'll, he'll listen to any kind of mundane conversation and he'll wait for the perfect moment to kind of go, Hmm, that's pornographic. And then you will sit there you and your coterie of friends who were discussing something totally mundane, wondering what possibly could be pornographic about what was being discussed. And then you will realize there isn't anything pornographic about it. He just wanted to see if he could like punk the entire room right. into thinking there was. Right. And then he like, it's like, it's like this weird Yoda skill at like <laughs> throwing people off. And timing, right? It's, it's, it's beyond perfect. And I wish I could like bottle it up and sell it. <laughs> So anyway, so my dad said that he's like, "Hmm, very nice," and he walks off, and I went, "Okay." <laughs> so I just kind of kept kept at it, and um, uh, I, you know, I like the female form. I've I've drawn a whole series of uh, I kind of refer to it as cheesecake to use the old uh, Olivia de Bernadars phrase for kind of pinup art that isn't quite like the stuff that you would put on the side of a military plane. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've done a couple of portraits in that style for, for people, so it's it's. Well, they never came off pornographic to me. And I hope they, they don't, because that's not the intent. They come off as like erotic art, like it has its its authenticity to it. 
And, and, and that's what's like amazing about it. Because I've seen others do nudes and it comes off pornographic. It's like, okay, I get it. But, but in your case, I, I think it's fascinating in, in your style. That's great to hear because, you know, I'm always kind of, I'm fascinated by what people actually think sometimes because I don't really know what to expect. I, I, you know, I started posting my artwork online, uh, God, almost 20 years ago. And I've always had the same kind of view on it, which is on one side, I don't care what people think. I do this for myself. It's my own catharsis. At the same time, I'm fascinated by what people do think one way or the other. Uh, I think when I had my first show at Chromatic years ago, uh, I was coming to the coffee shop every day for hours at a time. So I put my stuff up and I had a mix of drawings and, and paintings. Uh, and I think I actually had it on, on equally on both sides, like the one wall uh, when you walk in on the left was all drawings and the wall on the right was all paintings. Uh, so I think some people thought it was two different artists, which was interesting. But I would sit in the coffee shop and I would just listen to conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I got a handful of people who like, A, thought it was two different artists, which was just kind of neat. Um, and uh, I got a bunch of people who were like saying they liked X or disliked Y. And, and I never stopped to tell them, oh, it's like, by the way, I'm right here. Uh, I was just more fascinated by, okay, it elicits a reaction, any reaction. Cool. I, I was I was more pleased by the fact that it, it actually elicited something than, oh, it's abstract art, crap, I could do that. Okay. But you didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did. And that's the difference. And I put it up on a wall, so I win. I was like, <laughs> it's a... Uh, yeah, well, I'm still wrapping myself around abstract paintings. Like I've been visiting a lot of museums in the East Bay, um, and some abstract portraits. And it's funny because I, 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 this is how dumb I. Am. I go and I ask the staff, "All right, how am I supposed to look at this? Is there a ritual I'm supposed to do?" And they're like, "No, just just look at it." I'm like, "Okay." Then I go, "How long?" They're like, "And this is the important part." They say, "Until you you come up with a feeling, or until something." Until something comes to you, I'm like like what? They're like you'll you'll find out. And ever since I did that, I've actually ex- uh, appreciated abstract paintings more because I will sit there. Some will take a minute. Some will take literally five to ten minutes. Where I'll just sit there, and then I'm like, okay, I think I kind of get a feeling here. And that's part of it. Like, so I think part of the reaction to abstract art that people have is that they see it in a book or they see some small scale thing, and they're like, eh, whatever. Um, or there's not enough of it, like they see like a Rothko. Rothko is kind of a classic example, big giant color field paintings. And they don't realize that part of the the power of, you know, a Rothko or a Rauschenberg uh, or a Twombly is the scale. They're huge. And it's textures and stuff where you have to kind of step back so you can see it kind of in place and then get up close so you can kind of see the little minutia that's in there. Texture matters, form matters, the vibrancy of the color matters. Um, but, you know, if you think about it, it's the same way you would look at, this is just a way to look at it. I don't want to say this is the way to look at it. Um, when you're staring at the ocean, yeah, you know it's the ocean. It's an object that you recognize, but the ocean is largely formless. It's just, it's basically a wet texture on top of, you know, dry earth. That's an abstract painting in a lot of ways, but we love looking at the ocean. We love hearing the ocean. You know, most people do at least. Uh, same thing with the forest, right? Like these are almost, if you start thinking about them as something other than, trees they just become an abstracted form painting is the same way it's like if you don't if you don't give yourself um a fixed requirement uh it becomes a lot easier to enjoy yeah 
It's like, oh, I can't like it because it's not an object I recognize. Why? Do you do you like the color blue? That's like, you know, do you like certain combinations of things? Do you like textures and stuff? Do you like looking at? Um, it, it requires you to open your head up a little bit. Yeah. I think that's part of the challenge for it. And the truth is, there is a lot of crap abstract art. There's a lot like so. I was um, I was a, what they called a gallery administrator at the time for DeviantArt.com uh, from about 2004 to 2008, and I handled uh, traditional galleries. And there was a lot of crap art. There was a lot of kids faking abstracts. How do you fake an abstract, dude? You can kind of tell, like, part of it... And obviously, it's not a perfect science. I mean, this is the thing, right? So I don't want to... This is this is a really hard space to kind of discuss from the standpoint that I'm either going to... It's almost guaranteed I'm either going to come off condescending as fuck uh, or or clueless. And right. I don't think I'm actually either... I'm, I'm trying to be pretty honest here is that, you know, you get people who either through training or through practice have a really good handle on color and form and texture and space. And it kind of shows in the work, you know, you get that there's kind of a completed, you, you kind of sense a completed thought process in what this was. You may not even like it or you might like it a lot, but there's kind of a, okay, this, this feels fairly fully baked. Somehow, like I'm, I'm getting a feeling from it, which is this is thought out. This is kind of, and then there'd be stuff where you're just like, okay, you, you, you looked at some Jackson Pollock paintings, maybe you took a couple of shrooms, um, or gave yourself a concussion and you got that right. You just, you could just tell some stuff seemed more fully baked than others. And I think it's the same, I think it's the same feeling where between people who have, have started to develop their own style and people who are just technically adept. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I, if I wanted to draw really realistically now, I, I'm sure I still could, but it would take way more effort for me because I've, I've developed whatever style I have, I have it's what I do. And I've gotten there by, I got to a point where I felt I reached a decent level of technical proficiency and I became more interested in finding a voice of my own. Mm-hmm. Um, like you show me someone who can draw technically hyper realistic really well, really well, and you show me someone who maybe they can draw that well or not that well, but they've got a really interesting style of their own. I'm going to be more drawn to the interesting style. Um, like Pablo Picasso is a great example. Like at a young age, that dude was a insanely talented technical draftsman. He he could draw incredibly well. I find that period of his career incredibly boring. It's cool to look at, like as a point of reference, but it's as he got progressively more removed from that, that I become more excited. It's like, oh, okay, this is, he's now taking that and, and doing way different stuff with it. Um, you know, or um, uh, I mentioned Bill Sienkiewicz before. He mostly became famous for comic books. He did a whole bunch of stuff in the eighties, uh, mostly for, for kind of, um, he changed the comics field forever because he started to do mixed media painting instead of just drawing stuff out. And his style visually is kind of really, really like, it's pretty specific. You can pick it out anywhere. Hmm. Um, and he can draw very, very realistically paint very, very realistically, but it's when he gets more stylized and his figures get more elongated and the colors get more unrealistically vibrant when uh, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's the stuff that I like. That's, that's the stuff that's, that's kind of neat. Um, appreciating art, I think, is just hard for some people. 
They, yeah. they, they're like, I, I want the really cool Thomas Kincaid painting. And to those people, I say, I jump in a tree shredder. <laughs> I, I just, I don't got, I, I don't got nothing for you. <laughs> it's like, yeah. But I think it's just exposing yourself more to these things. And I, I, that's something I learned. Like now, I'm, like I said, I'm really developing this new appreciation for the abstract. And it just takes time to surround yourself in that, in those paintings and really look at them. And, and I think the magic is in their simplicity because it's not simple at all. But I think to the untrained eye, it comes off, oh, there's just shapes and, 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 and colors and that's it. But it's not really. Like the more you look into it, you're like, this is actually some, some chaotic shit <laughs> happening that's like amazing. Yeah, and you, and you put it in the right context and it's, it's, it's a lot more interesting that way. Um, and it, 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 that's true for any art, really. It's not even just for abstracts. It's, it's just, in some ways, it's almost easier to appreciate something in its right home, mm. right? Like you put, like, I like Franz Klein, another guy who does a lot of big abstracts. And I remember seeing a bunch of Franz Kleins and I forget which museum it was in New York, but they were huge, but there was also multiples of them in a row. So you had to sit back in this room to go watch them. And then all of a sudden you realize that it wasn't even just the paintings themselves. The entire room became kind of this interesting showpiece and you're sitting in it. Yeah. Those paintings could have also been like, you know, religious iconography. But the placement and the room and the space and everything kind of made them, made made the whole bigger than the sum of its parts. Like each work itself was interesting, but all of a sudden kind of put together in this overall context. I think this is one of those things that people don't get when you're doing like a museum show. Um, like I think of, you know, like Anno Domini, like they seem to put some pretty great care into putting stuff in the space as best as they can, given the limit, I mean, it's a limited space, right? But almost every show that I've gone in there, they've got like the placement kind of done in a really nice way where depending on which door you enter in, you can kind of follow a nice natural path mm-hmm. or you can sit in the middle and kind of try to take the whole thing in. Right. And you could screw that up. You could put things in a sequence that just makes it kind of like, uh, this is, I'm not following this. Um, or maybe to like use a musical example, like you ever listen to an album and you kind of think that the songs are out of, like they're not in the right order. Yeah. I get that sometimes. You know, the same thing happens visually. It's like, you might like each song individually by itself, but then you listen to the album. Boy, am I showing my age now? Um, and you're like, uh, that's. Song number three should be like the last song on the record, and like everything else should stay this, or whatever the, the thing is. Just, right? just recently, I got the Bob Dylan uh, Blonde, not Nelson Blonde, Blonde and Blonde Desire album. And it's like, I, I think those two great songs, I, th- I think this album with just these two songs will be great. As of these couple other ones, I, I don't know how, how they even got on the record. So yeah, like, so, it's kind of like what you're going for, right? Yeah, it's it's just you know it's a sequence. It's the is is everything here that's supposed to be here? Yeah, right. And so it actually makes a difference on how you appreciate this stuff. So you know, the, well, like I did the the I've done I have experimented with my own stuff whenever I'm doing a sh- you know like a chromatic I would experiment between like segregating all the drawn stuff with all the painted stuff or intermixing it like in a sequence. Um, I found it more interesting to have it segregated, but in a very kind of clearly delineated way, like pairing one for one. Um, I think every artist, you know, once they get to that stage, probably has to go through kind of a thought process going, how do I, how do I order this stuff? Or I'm going to put it in a gallery and here's the space that they gave me. How do I, where do I put stuff? Um, So that when people are walking through this, they get kind of a, they get a narrative of some kind. Yeah. Um, and like I said, like as a band, like either sequencing the album or like you're doing a gig, it's like, what's the set list? 
Um, you know, how are we, are we going to start with something slow and build up, or are we going to start out of the gate like full gallop? What's 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 our deal here? Um, and we have to think about that. And I think most of the most audiences don't think about that. They only notice it when it's wrong. Yeah, yeah. Like if if we do our job right, the audience won't notice. The audience will go, I had a cool gallery experience. I went to a cool concert. If we do it wrong, they'll be like, dude, they started with that new track and it sucks. Or like I came in and it was all the brown paintings and they just, I don't like brown, like whatever the the case is. But it's, it's, it's something that I don't think most people think of when they, when they have an art experience. Hmm. Lot to think about. A lot of food for thought. You've reached the one hour mark. Usually we close up shop around here. Uh, where can people check out your stuff? So, uh, easiest way is to find me if you type the uh, sequence of letters Z-E-R-U-C-H. I think I am seven of the top ten results on Google. So, that's my Instagram handle, my Twitter handle, uh, DeviantArt Society 6 uh, because I, I fully believe in art and commerce. I put my art on every format I possibly can. I'm also in like Redbubble and a bunch of other stuff. Um... If anybody wants to, to hit me up or argue with me, saying that whatever I said here was complete bullshit, by all means, please do. <laughs> Are you calling out your critics already? Uh, yeah. I'm like, I'll take on all comers, really. Uh, you'll, find me, you'll find me at the corner of San Carlos and First Street. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty often. And it's because I don't take myself that serious. Like, sure, you want to challenge me? Cool. Because I, you know, I am not the arbiter of truth. I just, I, I'm winging it like everybody else. Right. But you're doing it very, very well. I'm trying. Thank you, George. Joseph, pleasure having you here. Pleasure being here. Thanks for having me.